as a small e-commerce business with a similarly sized marketing budget, how do you compete with the big players? My guest today has a wealth of experience working with some of the biggest e-commerce brands out there and now helps small businesses create epic marketing strategies, no matter their size. On today's episode, we're talking all things brand building and how to prep your e-commerce business for Christmas in these COVID times. Let's get into it. You're listening to Voice Your Brand, the podcast dedicated to helping you launch and grow your brand online by injecting it with a whole load of personality and creating content that turns followers into loyal fans, all through the power of a unique brand voice. If you're struggling to stand out online, getting stuck writing your product descriptions, or feeling pulled in a million directions when it comes to marketing your e-commerce brand, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Nell Casey, the founder of Fate Creative, an e-commerce copywriting agency that writes things to brands that sell online. Before we dive in, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. All right, let's go. Just a quick note before we get started, we had some technical issues with this episode that means the audio isn't that great, but there are some amazing tips in there. So I hope you stick around to listen to the end. Hello and welcome to the Voice Your Brand podcast. Today, I'm joined by Charlie Bland from Dear Charlie Marketing. Charlie is an e-commerce marketer who offers legit marketing training and strategy delivered in a fun and friendly way that you can actually understand. Charlie has a wealth of marketing knowledge and ideas for e-commerce brands, which we'll dive into in this episode. And we're also going to talk about marketing in the lead up to Christmas and how the coronavirus might change your marketing strategy this year. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Charlie. What, what an intro. I feel so special. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I have been really trying to get you onto the podcast because, um, you know, I know your knowledge and your experience is so great. Um, and I just want to be able to share that with my listeners. So, yeah, I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much. It's so good, actually. I just love being able to tell as many people as possible how they can improve what they're doing because I think so many people feel really overwhelmed and it's actually not that difficult to be able to do some of the stuff that those big businesses are doing and get those gains for yourself. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about some of those big brands that you have worked with because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's really um, helped you understand and get a lot of knowledge about the e-commerce, you know, world. So do you want to start by telling us a bit about you and your background and, um, you know, how you got into e-commerce marketing? Yeah, of course. So as you might have heard, I'm definitely not an Australian native, um, although I am definitely slowly gaining the upward inflection. Um, I moved out here in mid-2018. Um, I'm originally from London in the UK, which is kind of where I cut my teeth, I suppose, and gained the majority of my experience. So I'm super lucky to have that experience working in the UK where e-commerce is huge. It's literally double what it is in terms of market penetration in Australia. Um, And I worked for some really huge businesses, which was kind of, I sort of fell into that situation, to be honest with you. I actually didn't do a marketing degree, believe it or not. I studied, this is a fun fact, not many people know this. Um, I studied sculpture and printmaking at university. So I have a degree in contemporary art practice. (laughs) But I was always really interested in marketing, in writing and all those kind of things. And I was the editor for the student paper and I got involved in so much stuff that when I left university I went straight into a role um, interning for a fashion brand that was ironically run by two Australian girls. Um, so <laughs> my journey kind of swiftly moved through the 
small fashion theme. Um, and I eventually got a job at a multi-branded luxury retailer called mywardrobe.com. Um, they were a pure play retailer, so completely online, um, and they sold a really wide variety of luxury designer goods. I don't believe they still exist. There was quite a lot of those uh, luxury multi-branded companies that unfortunately went under. Um, but at the time, they were one of the main competitors for Net-A-Porter, if you've heard of Net-A-Porter before, which I'm sure most people probably have in terms of the luxury retail like market industry. Um, so when I worked at mywardrobe.com, I worked really closely with the studio there. Um, I actually started out as an intern. So for anyone who's trying to get into the whole fashion and e-commerce world, that's kind of how I started out. And then a year later, I wrote back to them and ended up getting a job in their editorial team, which is where my kind of first steps into e-commerce marketing took place. Um, and then from mywardrobe.com, I got offered that I got approach for a role at boohoo.com which was really exciting because at the time boohoo was not the mega global brand that we know it as now at the time boohoo.com was really small and the content team that I joined was roughly five people I think at the time so the marketing team at boohoo back then fitted into one room I feel like it was probably 20 to 30 people which when you think that, that covers social media, PR, digital marketing, content marketing, like that's tiny for a business of that size. Um, so yeah, I worked at Boohoo.com for a while. And while I was there, I started off doing um, mainly copywriting and content production. So managing um, their website changeouts and making sure that the content was really relevant and working on their customer profiles as well. So helping them understand like exactly who they were talking to. So while we were at Boohoo, we had a series of six different proto personas, as you might call them in a web design world, but basically like your customer avatar, which I'm sure more people have heard of. And um, everything was tailored to those guys. And then I um, fell into a role doing digital marketing for them as well, which is where I kind of got interested in the statistics and the, the sort of nerdy side of marketing, to be honest with you. Um, I was working with those guys to really look at their data and find the most valuable customers that they had and how we could target those customers through their marketing and um, to drive more orders and to drive more frequency um, and average order value from those customers because we know that they love the brand so if we can get them to shop with us more or with Boohoo more um, they're just going to make more money. So I kind of went from Boohoo um, while I was at Boohoo I got approached for a role at ASOS. Now at the time Boohoo was based in Manchester which for those of you who aren't familiar with the UK is probably in terms of the UK, it's far away from London, but in terms of Australia, it's like a hop, skip and a jump down the road. So it's it's like two hours on a train from London, which and like three and a half hour drive, which is pretty long as distances go in the UK. So it's not like here where people would just drive from the sunny coast to the Gold Coast and call it a day, you know. Um, so I took the role at ASOS, not really considering the fact that it meant moving back down to London and the whole reshape. But you know, ASOS is like the dream at that age. I was in my mid-20s and I was just like, oh, my gosh, I already spent all my money with this business. Like, I literally know this business inside out. Um, so that was really exciting. And the role I moved into at ASOS was um, CRM e-commerce copywriter. So I was actually um, working only on their email marketing. So if you've ever received an email from ASOS um, back in the early, what do we call them, the early 2010s? They haven't really got a nifty catchphrase, but um, yeah, I probably wrote that. Um, it was pretty fun. 
back in the day when I worked there, and I can only imagine how big it is now, but the UK active email database is over 8 million people, which is crazy when you think the population isn't the population of Australia like 20 million people like so it's just totally mind-blowing um but all the emails and all the content that I was creating for ASOS and um, that was also being translated into a variety of different languages so we had that being translated into Russian into Chinese into I think it was a Korean team there was German Spanish French um, and then also the Australian and New Zealand team. So we would write all the content and then we would tweak stuff to suit the different global markets. So obviously, like you guys have O-Week, we call it Freshers' Week. It's just changing the lingo so it makes sense. Um, ASOS was pretty awesome, actually, because they were so big that they did stuff at a scale that you can't do in a smaller business, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a bit. But um, then from ASOS, I actually moved to a lesser known department store in the UK um, called British Home Stores. Now, British Home Stores, not many people know um, if you're not from the UK or you've spent time living over there. But BHS was a kind of seen as a bit of a grandma brand. I suppose you could say. Like it's kind of like if you took David Jones and made it a bit less mainstream so it was <laughs> it was one of those brands where I basically I really wanted the chance to do broader marketing so I wanted to move away from just writing email copy I wanted the chance to start doing more of the data but data driven stuff that I was doing at Boohoo and take all of my knowledge and sort of across the board and apply that so this job came up and everyone thought I was crazy I was leaving ASOS where it was like I got stuff discount I got 40% off like the sale so it was like insane there was weekly sample sales at ASOS so I still am like it's a running joke in our household where I go to wear something and my fiance is like oh did you get like a sample sale because <laughs> that's what happens when you've worked in e-commerce for that long but um yeah I, I left ASOS to go work for this grandma department store but I was just really excited to have the challenge of raising the brand profile of this store that I knew did really good homewares some of the fashion actually wasn't that bad when you delve down. Like there was some cool stuff going on under the surface. But its reputation as a brand was really fuddy-duddy. It was not cool at all. Um, and especially in the um, sort of infrastructure of the parent group that owned VHS. Um, so Arcadia Group owned VHS at the time. Um, they owned Topshop. They owned Dorothy Perkins. They owned pretty much most of the UK high street. So they, we were like the uncool grandma brand in their umbrella of brands. But it, VHS was just, it was so much fun. Like I worked there for probably about two and a half, no, it was just shy of two and a half years, I think. Um, please don't check me on that. I can't remember off the top of my head. It feels like a million years ago. But um, I worked really closely with the digital teams and also the in-store teams. So I started off working purely on their online store, which was amazing because we were working so closely with trading managers. And again, this is a this is a department store in the UK that at the time had 160 stores across the country, as well as the online business. But the the content team was me, my uh, me, sorry, um, my assistant, and then our manager. So there was three of us doing the content for this entire business, which was just totally wild. So I think that's the biggest thing that I suppose any small business owner can take from this is that actually those huge businesses have really small content teams generally until they get to a point where they're like ASOS mega scale. So yeah, 
Um, BHS was great. I worked really closely on um, a variety of things across the store. So from creating the in-store point of sale graphics, the window graphics, um, the messaging behind all of those campaigns, like how are we going to talk about Mother's Day this year, say, for example, to our customers and then talking to the trading managers about what what products do they have in women's wear and gifting that they need me to promote and how are we going to package this in a way that works to drive all those KPIs for the business. Um, and then for BHS, I actually sadly got made redundant from BHS. But, you know, the way I see it is that and this is something that often people forget about me is they see all these huge brands on my CV and they think, oh, but you can't help me because I'm a small business and I don't have much money. And how are you going to know what to do for my marketing? But the reality is, is when a business goes into administration like BHS did, um, we couldn't even buy a pen without getting that signed off. So my budget went to like, I'm talking less than 10,000 Australian dollars to do a marketing campaign for over 180 UK stores and the online. Like, basically no money um, so I'm very much used to finding ways to make things work for very little budget which is why I feel like I bring that edge to my clients and that I can bring the big business knowledge and apply it in a smaller a smaller frame but anyway so I got made redundant from BHS which is a whole other story for another day but the entire company folded and we got told on the day that it folded basically that tomorrow was your last day um so I actually was on holiday when the company went under I was on holiday with my parents thankfully with my parents because they could pay for things but <laughs> I suddenly didn't have a paying job from like the next day um and I went back to the office when I got back from holiday to clear my desk and it was like a scene from like a zombie movie like everyone's half drunk coffee cups were on the table like people's notebooks were still open and so yeah it really did it died a very quick and sudden death, unfortunately, um, which was funny because I actually moved into a completely different role after BHS and I did a little stint in the charity sector, which might seem strange, but I did actually learn quite a lot that I could bring to e-commerce from that. So I worked for the fundraising campaign Stand Up to Cancer, which is a fundraising campaign run by Cancer Research UK, which is one of the biggest charities, I think, in the world, which is kind of wild. Um, and it's a really media-led campaign. So it's run in conjunction with Channel 4, which is one of the main um, TV channels over there. And it's really celebrity-driven. So it's one of those um, fundraising campaigns that has a telethon every other year. Um, it has some really, really big celebrities uh, presenting that telethon and then lots and lots of content um, to do with celebrities. And all that kind of thing. So I was working with national media brands and all sorts to really bring that fundraising campaign to life, but also to try and make it super relevant to that target audience, which is something that is really important for e-commerce brands as well. Um, and then moving on from the charity sector, I then ended up starting my own business. So I started working for another marketing agency and I was actually contracting myself out full-time to that agency so it kind of didn't really count as my own business I feel because I didn't have to do all the marketing that I do now I didn't have to do all the personal brand work um, but that was great because the mix of clients that they had was really varied I was working across such a variety but I was managing it all which is kind of wild looking back on it um, and then my lovely fiance who is an Australian and the reason why I'm over here his visa expired so we decided that we would come over here. It wasn't really something I ever really thought about, to be honest, until I was packing up my house. And I was like, oh, my gosh, um, 
yeah, so Australia's quite far. <laughs> and all my friends were like, uh, are you going to Australia? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, so you're going with your fiancé who you've known for like two years to move to Australia. And I was like, yeah, just kind of doing it. Didn't really think about it. <laughs> but it's been great. And um, when I moved back over here, I restarted Dear Charlie um, and I set, set up Dear Charlie Marketing from my like parents-in-laws. Parents-in-laws? Is that even a thing? But yeah, my in-laws place. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to do this again because I thought, you know what, I've got such a wide variety of experience in the UK and specifically of e-commerce that lots of people don't have here because of the fact that the industry and the e-commerce market is just not the same here as it is back at home. Um, and I'm, I'd, I can't wait to tell you more about that. But um, yeah, I kind of started and I was really lucky to have some great clients. So I had a local business that was a furniture retailer. Um, I landed a contract working for Sun and Sky for I think it was about three and a half months, actually, which was really cool. So um went down to Melbourne and was based down there for a little while and then worked remotely from the Gold Coast where I'm based now. So, um, yeah, Santa Sky was a great one because I got to work with some really cool brands as well. We worked on um, a tri-brand partnership between um, GoTo Cosmetics, Frank Body and Santa Sky, which was all about promoting the best of Australian beauty. Um, and I did loads of work with influencers and PR for that one. So that was a really nice Another string to my bow, I suppose you could say, where I got the chance to work with influencers in Australia. And for those of you who don't know, Australian influencers are some of the most expensive in the world. Um, they demand the big dollars, but they're also it's quite well established here, bizarrely, given that the e-commerce industry is not as well developed. So that was a really good client to have, and I was really lucky there. Um, and now I've kind of got this great mix of clients from, you know, from multi-brand local retailers to, you know, things like Sun and Sky to wedding wedding um, suppliers who have online stores on their websites as well, you know, to even just to like service-based businesses like graphic designers who sell products on their website. So it's been such a great journey for me. Hopefully I haven't bored you too much. <laughs> I love your story. I just think it's like crazy what like everything that you've done and all the different brands that you worked with. There are a couple of things that you said um, that I kind of wanted to pick up on and I know that uh, you kind of mentioned this as well. First of all, the size of e-commerce in the UK versus Australia. You know, I know that um, in 2020, Australia has made a massive leap forward in terms of our um, percentage of e-commerce versus general retail. Um, but like you said, in the UK, they were already there, you know, years ago. So, you know, tell me a bit more about your experience coming from that kind of world into Australia and how it sort of shaped how you approach working with your clients. So I think... To start with the stats, at the close of the year in 2019, so I know that obviously 2020 has changed a lot for Australia, but to look at the market penetration, so market penetration is essentially like what percentage of all shopping happens through that channel. Um, so the market percent, the market percentage, the market penetration of e-commerce in Australia versus the UK. In the UK, it was 22% versus just 9% in Australia, which is absolutely phenomenal. Like blows my mind and I guess moving from the UK to Australia it, it really struck me there was stuff that I used to always do at home that you just suddenly couldn't do here and for example I used to have an Amazon Prime account I loved Amazon Prime I don't have Amazon Prime anymore because you go to shop online 
with Amazon in Australia and you're trying to buy something that's 60 bucks, but it's got $200 of shipping on it. So it's kind of pointless. Um, but back in the UK, you could do stuff like if I wanted to buy a new light bulb or a charger cable for my iPhone or something like that, I would buy that on Amazon and I would do it in a couple of clicks and it would arrive at my office the next day or even in my home. And there is actually Amazon now in the UK, for those of you who don't know, um, in most of the main metropolises. And I think it's probably the same in Sydney and Melbourne now, but you can order and it will arrive in two hours, which is kind of insane. It's definitely not good for your carbon footprint. That's like my main guilt is putting money into um, Jeff Bezos's pockets and also putting lots of carbon into the atmosphere. But um, in terms of the ease and the rapidity with which you could get the goods that you were ordering, it's kind of the same with all the other brands as well. So you could buy fashion and it would be with you in a couple of days. You could order from most fashion retailers before 9pm and get it delivered the next day. Like it was just really, really fast. And I think that's the main difference here is that, and it struck me after a while of living here because when I first moved here and obviously we got our apartment and we were kind of furnished the apartment, I'd be like, all right, okay, I need to buy a sofa. So I'd go looking for a sofa online or a lounge, as you guys like to call it. Um, and I'd go looking for a lounge and I'd be like, okay, great. No one had the prices on their website. So Domain, Adairs, like loads of those places, not many of them back then had prices. And they wanted you to go in store and do the old school, like the salesperson schmooze and they'll give you 10% off and like, oh, I can do a deal for you. And it's like, I don't want that. I want to sit at home. I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to buy this sofa and you bring it to me. I don't want any interaction. With <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it, and it was just like, no, that's just how we do things here. Like we don't do that. And I think that really struck me and it took a while from that to really sink in. And it's only really now that I'm realizing how especially things like Australia Post really affects the ability for smaller businesses to do e-commerce well in Australia just because it's so vast that unless you're based in a metropolis, you're not going to get the delivery times that people are going to be able to get from those big guns. And that's purely because those big brands have got thousands of dollars to throw at shipping and the volume that they're putting through their shipping, you know, their shipping suppliers is so great that they're getting great prices. So I guess there's that real balance to be struck between informing your customers that your shipping is X amount and this is Y um, and then informing them of how long it's going to take because generally the feedback I get from people is that they're happy to pay for shipping and they're happy to wait for something because they know they're supporting a small business and they're not just paying money into one of those big global brands, which is huge, I think. Yeah, and it's something that you said there. It's actually about just setting that expectation and, um, you know, something that I spoke with my last guest, Nikki, about um, on the previous episode was um, essentially that user experience and that customer experience. And that goes through not just into how people experience your brand online through the website, but also through that, you know, follow-up. So how do they receive their packaging? What's the expectations? How well are you communicating where their product is you know like we all love a shipping update because it doesn't leave you wondering whether your product's being sent out or you know if you're waiting for it if you're just waiting for the postie to turn up with it in this you know and I think a lot of that as well you need to take into account your customer so say you've got a slightly older customer who perhaps isn't as um okay with shopping online it's not something they've grown up doing they might order and if you're not order confirmation straight away they might think that they've not put their order through so they might go back and place another order and then you've got two orders and then they're pissed off because 
they've got two orders that they pay for. You're having to spend time sorting that out. It messes with everything. So let's just make life easier. And like, I think the biggest thing that people forget and so much with marketing is that there's this like really, there's this statistic that's thrown around all the time, but it basically costs five times more to get a new customer than it does to keep an existing customer. And your customer experience with your business doesn't finish when they've placed their order. It finished. It, it to be honest, it never finishes. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Real talk. But um, once they order, you know, you're, you're sending them a package, and so you're sending them those updates, and you're making that personal. You know, is your customer someone that's not going to check in their emails? Is it better that you send them text message updates on their delivery, or even WhatsApp? You know, um, or an Instagram DM as customer service rather than having to do it for a form on the website. Like, what's going to resonate with your customer? And then obviously being able to do stuff that will help you as a business owner make more money, but also feels like you're helping your customer is the real winner, I think, when it comes to aftercare for your your customers and your clients. So, uh, for example, something I always lean on is uh, beauty products. Say you've sold a beauty product or any kind of consumable item, actually. Uh, how long does that usually last? So say I'm buying a tube of moisturizer from you and I've bought it online and you know that that with daily use normally lasts about three months. So then just shy of three months, taking into account your delivery timeline, I would probably send an email to that customer, which you can automate. This is the absolute joy of e-commerce is so many of the email stuff you can automate. And email marketing, to be honest with you, is relatively free. I say free in inverted commas because you have to pay for your email client. You might have to pay for a graphic designer and a copywriter. But... Generally speaking, it's much cheaper than the other types of marketing that you have available to you. But yeah, I'd be sending that customer an automated email, say like 60 days, you know, or 70 days later being like, hey guys, um, is your moisturizer nearly run out? Do you need to buy a new one? And then, you know, reminding them to purchase with you. It's just, it feels so personal as well. It's like, oh, thank you. That's so helpful. I've not run out because if you're anything like me, I always leave it until the day before and I'm like, oh, you know, same as dog food. Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, dog got no food now. What am I feeding him? Forgot to go shopping. If someone would just email me like a week before that bag of dog food was empty and tell me, hey, can you order some more dog food now so your dog isn't hungry next week? I would totally jump on that. Yeah, and it's such a good point. You know, I know that um, you like so few brands take advantage of email automation or they've kind of sort of done it. So they've got a welcome series um, and they've got a band and cart. They're sort of ticked the, the top level ones, but that really smart automation that, yeah, you know, it's a bit of a little extra effort at the start to figure out, okay, which of my products need to have an email follow-up? What's the timing of that? And, you know, you might pay someone to create those for you, but you'll be making bank like, you know, once you've got them set up, just watch the money come in and you don't have to really touch them again, you know, refresh them every now and then and that's it. And it's even as basic as in a lot of email clients, you can add tags to customers based upon what they're interacting with in previous emails or based on their previous purchase history. So say, for example, you run a multi-brand business, but you sell baby stuff and you also sell men's stuff and women's stuff and so I might be going through to your website I don't have children so I really don't care if you're going to send me an email with a load of baby stuff in it because I'm not buying it don't have a child so like 
you should find out that information from your customers based on their shopping behavior and then just choose to include or exclude content dynamically, which is possible in a lot of email clients nowadays. Um, so you're giving people what they shop. And there's ways to do this as well that doesn't involve super complex things where you can just you can subdivide your entire email base, right, into like, let's say, three interest groups. So you've got the mums who are shopping baby stuff. You've got um, the blokes or people that generally buy men's stuff because Newsflash is not men are buying for men, it's women. Like, all of you guys out there who've got a husband or a boyfriend, like, how often are you the one that's going out there and buying him new underwear or buying him new clothes because they just wear stuff into the ground? They don't shop for themselves. So don't forget that if you do run a menswear business, you might not have men as your target customer. Um, and then obviously women's wear. So you might tag, you might split your base up into three, say. And you can just design an email template that's thinking about how to make your life easier, where the majority of that content is the same for every single customer. But perhaps the top image is different. So it's re- going to resonate more with that customer as soon as they open the email. Yeah, I love that. And it really ties into, I guess, what this whole podcast is about, which is brand voice and brand personality, but as a way to communicate with your target audience and come to their level. And when we are talking about e-commerce, you know, you don't have someone in store face to face. So, you know, you can't have that face, like that one-on-one conversation with your customers potentially. So with it's online, you have to use some smart information and you have to use that data to be able to have what feels like a one-on-one conversation with them. 100%, but I think I'd argue it's not even database. It's just using your common sense. Like if you think about when you go into a store, like you want to touch the fabric of something, you want to feel what that texture of that sun lotion feels like on your skin, you know, you want to smell the candle. Like you can't do that because you're online. So it's trying to make sure that your product description is optimized as much as possible. So including all that information in the product description will really, really help. So whether or not that's, you know, this bag of coffee makes 50 cups of coffee or, you know, saying that the model is six foot two and she's wearing a size eight because I'm five foot two. So, and I don't know what that is in centimetres. You guys are going to have to figure that out for yourself. <laughs> I'm still rolling with my feet and inches here. Um, but I know that that woman's like got a foot on me. So if I buy that dress, I'm going to look ridiculous in it. So it really helps when that information's there because it, it just helps you imagine stuff and understand how that is going to be when you get it home. And I think that's another, the other side to that that perhaps people aren't thinking about. So, yeah, that's going to drive more sales, but it's going to reduce your customer service workload as well. And I think I always feel a bit mean to customers sometimes, but when I have clients, I'm like, you don't want to talk to your clients. Don't talk to your customers. Try and make it so your customers don't have to talk to you. Because at the end of the day, if your customers are having to reach out to you to ask a question, you're not doing your job properly on the website. Like you want people to be able to go to your website, get all the information that they need and check out without talking to you because that's the point. Like like I said with my sofa shopping, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I want to be able to do it from the comfort of my own home at 11 p.m. at night, you know. Um, Yeah, and for every one customer that's reaching out to ask you the question, there's probably five more that have just not bothered to and have clicked away and they've gone somewhere where they can get that information. So there's huge, there's some huge data around that. I don't have it to hand, but there's some, some crazy stats as well about reviews. Like, like people are more likely to leave a negative review than they will a positive review. And I think that's really important, but also they won't tell you if they've had a bad experience. So they don't tell you, they go and tell their friends that they've had a bad experience, which is not great, obviously, because you've got no idea that they've had a bad time. 
Um, so we've talked a lot about some of the, like your experience with the bigger brands, I guess, but, you know, a lot of my listeners are solo operators or they might have a very, very small team that are stretched across all operations of their business. But what do you think are some of the advantages that these small e-commerce brands would have over the big, big brands? I think the biggest thing is being able to make it feel super personal. Like you're really lucky in that sense. Like I think when businesses get to the scale of those big, you know, the big names, they don't have the ability to contact their customers on a personal level. They don't, everything has to be automated or done through data. Like ASOS isn't going to go through and go, oh, hey, now you bought this dress last week. Let me quickly reach out to you in the DMs and see how it was. So those small businesses have the chance to really get that feedback and to talk to their customers like people, like friends. And I think as well, there's a huge, huge consciousness for shopping local, like especially with all the coronavirus stuff, like everybody is being really conscious of where they're shopping and where they're choosing to spend their money. And I think that people want to support local. They want to shop small. And I think that that's something to really sell. I don't think it's worth as a smaller business pretending to be a big global brand. I think it's good to be real and raw and tell people that how it is. Like we're real with five of us, you know, two of us, or even just one. Like we've, we've all been there doing everything. And I think it's a good point. It's a selling point for the customers looking to shop with brands that they value. And I think the other thing as well with smaller businesses is they're often able to support their values much better. So sustainability is something that's really coming out of this coronavirus pandemic as a real um, priority for shoppers. They want to shop with brands that are genuinely sustainable. And I believe that the bigger businesses can't support that because their overheads and their turnover and their volume is so great that just through the nature of existing, they're, they're not helping the environment. I, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that there is a excellent segue there <laughs> to talk more about, um, I guess, you know, the impacts of the coronavirus on shopping generally, but also some things that uh, e-commerce brands can think about because we're only eight weeks out from Christmas, I which is like, I don't know where the year has gone. I know I say that every year, but truly this year <laughs> is the year. Um where it seems to have snuck up us up on us. So, you know, let's chat a bit more about that. I know that you have recently run a workshop where you talked about um, the coronavirus and, and Christmas marketing. So, do you want to dive into maybe some of the um, information that you've pulled out? Yeah, that? yeah, that's it. So, I think the biggest thing to think about is that Christmas does not happen in December anymore. That's probably the biggest headline for people. And not meaning to scare your listeners, but obviously they're going to be hearing this in early November. And I would definitely say, like, now is the time. Like people are shopping in November and it's happening earlier and earlier. People are not shopping in December as much anymore. And I think that's mainly because of the rise in things like Black Friday, which has obviously come over from the US. And so for those of you who aren't aware of Black Friday, there's still a few people that I talk to and I don't really understand it. But Black Friday came from the US. It happens the day after the Thanksgiving public holiday over there. Um, and something that lots of people in Australia didn't actually realize until I started explaining it. but in the UK, which is a big adopter of Black Friday, we get paid monthly on general, in general, sorry. So um, Black Friday actually lands just after that pay packet, which is your last pay packet before Christmas hits your bank account. So you've suddenly got the money, the last injection of cash that you're going to get to buy your Christmas presents with. So that's why everyone seems to go wild over Black Friday. That and the fact that the discounts are insane. So 
Traditionally, Black Friday has always been an in-store activity um, on the Friday itself, but over the past few years, it's definitely extended to be like a week of offers starting on Black Friday. Um, and then there was always Cyber Monday, which is the Monday following that Friday. Um, and Cyber Monday is, as you would expect, happening online. So um, Cyber Monday follows Black Friday. And what will often happen is retailers that haven't shifted the stock in their, like in person, in-store sales, they would move that into their online. However, this year, Black Friday is tipped to just be the biggest digital event of the year. It's not going to be as much of a focus on in-store shopping for obvious reasons. Um, and so I think it's going to be absolutely huge for retailers and e-commerce retailers. But what's really interesting about Christmas and um, coronavirus and all of that coming together is that um, one of the biggest things is just thinking about what people are buying. So when I first moved to Australia, people didn't really buy groceries online. And now I know that you are down, you're down in Melbourne, right? So people in Melbourne and Sydney are a bit more savvy because I think it's the reality of living in a bigger, bigger city where you're working longer hours and you're getting your groceries delivered. But up here in the Gold Coast, getting your groceries delivered was not or still isn't really the norm. So you tell people, I'm getting my groceries delivered. They're like, what? <laughs> what is this misery? Um, no, not quite that bad, but it definitely is. People still feel apologetic. They're like, oh, yeah, I get my groceries delivered. Oh, you know, and it's like it, in the UK, that's nothing to be lazy about. Like that's normal, totally normal behavior. And this is definitely something that's come out of the pandemic is that people are buying more non-essential goods through online channels. So in the past, people would buy things like fashion and electronics online in Australia. But nowadays, people are starting to buy things like their groceries. They're starting to buy things like tobacco, not tobacco, what? Which we redo that one. Okay, right. Okay. <laughs> so now so nowadays, um, people are starting to buy more um more like not more essential items online, including things like their groceries, um, health and beauty, pharmacy items and things like that. So you guys might have seen that obviously Adore Beauty recently went onto the stock market and it's gone off the chain. Um, and I think that definitely follows that whole trend there. So if you look at the penetration of those industries, the biggest, the biggest opportunities right now for um, e-commerce retailers, if you're a retailer that sells skincare, beauty, bath, body, those kind of items, people are buying that for the first time, or not for the first time, but they're buying it a lot more than they would have done traditionally in an online capacity. So you are really, you're really, really got a huge opportunity there, which is super exciting. Um, what else can I tell you about Christmas and coronavirus? Well, I guess probably one of the most obvious things to say is that people have less money this year, which seems obvious, but I'm going to delve into this a little bit more. Um, so thinking about your customer, um, I've got a bit of a truth one for you. Your customer is not anyone aged 18 to 55. Um, your customer is a specific person um, and they have a smaller age gap in that. You might have multiple target customers, but when you're thinking about your customer, most businesses do not have a customer base that is that broad. Um, and so looking at your customer, the way that customers have been affected by coronavirus in terms of their spending habits has changed. And so to throw a few stats at you, 54% um, of millennials and 41% of Gen Z are saying that they feel that they are spending less because of coronavirus. And I think that's partly because we are the generation that, you know, we graduated out of university. I mean, I'm saying this from my stance as a millennial, so I'm 32. Um, 
you know, we graduated from university into an economic depression that didn't have many jobs. We've seen the fallout of that. And we've also always struggled to do things like buy, you know, buy houses, buy cars. Like money has been a real challenge for us. Like not because we aren't good with money. It's just that the economy has kind of been our worst enemy. And I think we're also, especially more so perhaps with Gen Z, but we're all massively concerned about the environment and broader social and economic situations that are going on. And we're hanging on to our money because we don't want to be stuck in a cycle of debt. And I think Gen Z, even more so than millennials, from what I've read, they've seen us screw up and rely on our rely on our overdrafts. And so Gen Z are more like, hey, guys, we're not going to do that, um, which is really interesting. So although those people are not spending as much, what is the biggest stat that I kind of take from this, and obviously we all know about after pay and buy now, pay later, um, but 90, I think it's like 94% or definitely over 90% of Gen Z um, supposedly are using Afterpay as a way to manage their budget, not as a way to access credit. So whereas millennials, we are slightly more guilty of using Afterpay because we really need those shoes. It's an emergency and we must have them now. And so we pay them off over the next month. Gen Z link their debit cards to their Afterpay accounts. So they're using it as a method of budget control. They're not using it to pay for things that they can't afford. So they're probably not going to spend money with you unless they really, really want to. Whereas if your customer isn't millennial Gen Z, and looking at boomers, for example, um, only 23% of boomers say that they think their spending habits have been affected by coronavirus, which is huge. So depending on your customer, you may or may not need to factor in that spending situation with your customer. And a way of overcoming so I guess that's the biggest question if I'm saying oh your customers aren't going to spend money with you you're like great thanks that's real helpful (laughs) I guess the biggest advice I can give is if you are mainly targeting millennials and gen z it's just really really improving that brand experience making sure everything that you're offering your customer feels personal even if it's not like we spoke about with the targeting and the emails and things um, making sure that online experience is really easy to navigate. Um, and basically, there's this great statistic, which I'm always banging on about. People are probably bored of me saying it now, but um, 86% of buyers have said that they'll pay more for better for a better brand experience. And so that's, that's, that's huge. So if you can give people the best possible time when they shop with you, they're going to choose you over those big guns that might be able to discount more heavily than you're able to. Yeah, and I think you raised some really great points um, there as well. Like, you know, going back to what we said before about people wanting to really shop local, and I think we've seen that start even from the bushfires at the start of the year. It's during a real continuation of that trend towards shopping local, shopping small business, um, and, you know, shopping within your community. And so if you can really um, speak to that with your marketing, you know, tell the stories of, you know, you as the business owner or your staff members or the community that you operate within, even your partners and your suppliers, you get to build that kind of story and that connection. And that allows people to kind of go, well, actually, this brand does align with my values. And this is where I choose to spend my money. And it's a clear advantage that you have, you know, as you said, over the bigger brands um, to be able to do that. And it gives people a reason to spend their money with you. Because you're giving them that information that they they need to make that decision. And it's increasing trust as well. I think there's a real scepticism around bigger brands that they're just in it for profit. 
Um, whereas I feel like people's genuine, genuine, <laughs> people's general um, opinions of smaller businesses is that they're much more trustworthy. You know, they are people that we can relate to. They're people like us and they want, we want to support those people because they're people in our community. And like you were saying, um, with all the bushfire stuff as well. So I don't know if you remember Buy from the Bush. Mm. Uh, recently partnered with PayPal, which is huge, which shows just how important that whole community and shop local, that whole movement is. It's absolutely massive. So I actually have a listener question that um, relates really closely to what we're talking about today. So I want to play that for you and then maybe we can have a chat about, um, you know, how we would approach that. Yeah, 100%. Hello, my name's Amanda from Amanda Summons Photography and my question is, what advice do you have for brands and brand voice and copy in a post-COVID world? How would you tailor copy to, you know, acknowledging our situation? Thanks, can't wait to hear what you say. Bye. That's such a great question. Isn't it? Yeah. So Amanda's question, all about how do we tailor our copy and our brand voice to, I guess, acknowledge the COVID-19 coronavirus situation? Oh, definitely. So I think, I don't know about you guys, but how many of you guys got emails from brands that you've never spoken to slash engaged with for months? When the coronavirus pandemic first broke out, I was getting emails from my Air France. Bear in mind, I now live in Australia, so I don't actually think Air France flies in and out of Australia, as far as I'm aware. Um, I hadn't flown with them for like about three or four years, and it was like, we're so sorry that you can't fly anywhere. And I was like, go away. Like, <laughs> we just wanted to let you know we're thinking of you, and here's our COVID-19 plan. And you're like... Hey, I don't know about you. <laughs> what are you talking about? No, and so I think that's the first thing is being genuinely honest. Like, hey, don't email people that you haven't spoken to for months and be like, we're thinking of you because you're not. We haven't spoken to them in months. So, you know, I think that's the first point is, you know, I'm not saying don't email people that you haven't spoken to for a long time, but perhaps don't open with that because that seems quite this, you know, disingenuous. Is that a word? I don't know. Disingenuous, I'm- yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in Monday Shakespeare here, making up words. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I think the other thing is to not, to still stay true to your brand tone. Like, don't suddenly become this, like, agony aunt style, like, oh, we feel for you. Like, if you're punchy, like, keep your tone punchy and keep it real and be like, you know, like, hashtag Rona and all that kind of stuff. And I think people have been spoken to about coronavirus now for a really, really long time. And honestly, I think there is some fatigue around that messaging. And I don't think people really need to hear it anymore. Like, I know, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's really shit. Like, oh, you know, and I'm not trying to be like disrespectful because I get it. It's been the worst year. Like on a personal level, I've had a terrible year. Like we rescheduled our wedding. We did all sorts of stuff. But I, I'm just, I'm kind of over the sorry, life sucks this year messaging. And I think it's time to take a more positive tone and start looking forward. And I think, I feel at least that's where everybody else is with all of this. Like it's time to start looking forward and stop commiserating. And I, I think that would probably be my tips in terms of tone of voice and brand tone of voice is stay true to who you are as a brand. Don't suddenly become this like sympathy agony aunt if that's not your tone of voice. And try and try not to be too negative as well. Like I think it's really important to be honest, like and be upfront. If your delivery is affected because of coronavirus, then tell your customers they understand. But you don't have to be like, oh, really? Coronavirus affected our deliveries. You could be like, yo, coronavirus. It's fucked some shit up this year. 
if that's your tone of voice like you know let's keep it real <laughs> yeah absolutely and I that's I you know would agree with that that first of all maintain your brand voice because that is essentially the core of what your brand is and who your brand is um and secondly I think is just be really clear and honest in your communications. You know, if people, you know, if you say you have a retail store as well as online or you offer something like Click and Collect, just be really clear with what people need to be able to do um, in order to meet those, you know, COVID-safe requirements. Be really clear in your, like, say, opening hours, your limits for people. Um, do you offer pickup times so you don't have too many people coming to your location at once? What are your shipping times? How have they been affected? You know, people just really want to get the information that they need now. Um, I think it's been really drilled into us what our requirements are. And here in Victoria, we're still masking. Um, So, you know, obviously you might say to people, look, if you are click and collecting from our store in Victoria, make sure you have a mask on, that kind of thing. Or, um, But, yeah, basically you just want to be really clear about what the requirements are for people going forward. Um, I know that this question came from a photographer, so obviously she's been more heavily impacted by coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing is to just always point people back to the government websites for mm. information because then you're sending people to the best source of up-to-the-minute information. And so you're saying, hey, it's managing expectations in the sense of like this is what we are doing for coronavirus in the store or online. This is how we've been impacted. Um, but if you want the latest, please go here. Because I think there's something there's something around that as well where it. You know, you don't want to have information on your website that you're constantly having to update um, and stay on top of because that just opens yourself up to risk, which you don't need to take. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I just kind of wanted to cover one more thing, I think, before we wrap up. And that's, I guess, your quick fire tips. What are the quick wins that people, brand owners can do right now um, to get themselves ready for Christmas? Cool. Awesome. So I think the first thing... A lot of what I do in terms of marketing is all around user centricity, which is making sure that your customers get exactly what they need from your website in order to be able to do that the best that they, to sell the best way that they can. So I would get a collection of maybe five or six. You don't need more than six people who are your target customer. Sit down with them and ask them to use your online store to carry out some tasks and explain what they're doing. So this is basically a way of user testing and you can start to see how people interact with your website. You might ask them, hey, go on my website and say you're a gifting store, buy a, buy a photo frame. And if they can't find the photo frame, then you know you've screwed up from the start because they get to your site and they can't get there. So that's a real quick win so that you can understand where perhaps people are finding it hard to shop. The other really essential thing, if you haven't already done this, this is huge, but please set up Google Analytics for your online store because the reason this is so important, and it's really frustrating for me as a marketer, um, Google Analytics doesn't start to um, collect data until you set it up in your website. So if I come to your brand and you've never set up Google Analytics before, I then have to set it up and I have to wait to collect data. So you want to collect that data over this Christmas period when you're going to get the most traffic, or at least you'd be expecting to get the most traffic. And by traffic, I mean the amount of people that come and shop on your online store. So to set up your Google in your website, it's actually Google, set up Google in your website, set up Google Analytics in your website. It's pretty straightforward. And if you're on one of the main platforms like Shopify, they have step-by-step instructions. So don't freak out. It's pretty easy and you can probably do it yourself. 
Um, and then finally, the other things that I would say would be to be super clear on your messaging around delivery, around returns, and around refunds. So what is the last day that someone can shop with you and get it delivered in time for Christmas? Are you extending your returns policy or your returns period to allow for people to return gifts that they're buying now in November in January? Because that's huge, especially given that people are shopping now in November for Christmas, but those people might not return those gifts until the new year, but can they still return them? Because I think knowing that that's a possibility, I think is a definite reason to shop for somebody. Yeah, I think it's all about messaging, making sure that your messaging is as clear as possible, getting Google Analytics set up so that you can start to accrue data so that even if you've not been able to do as much marketing this year as you would have liked, you've got some data to look at for next year's planning. And then also asking some people who are your target customer to use your website and try and carry out the basic things that you need people to be doing on there and understand if it makes sense. Because I think all too often, we are so close to our own personal brands and business websites that we can't see the issues that other people instantly spot. Thank you so much, Charlie. There was so much great information in there. Um, and I, you know, just want to thank you for coming on. And I know we had some tech issues, but hey, we got through it. And, you know, that's, that's life. <laughs> it's, no, it's just the dumpster fire of 2020 just continuing um so how can people follow you or get more information from you so i run um, a series of online and in-person marketing workshops which will be relaunching next year i'm not planning anymore until probably february the earliest next year so you can pre-register your interest for those on my website which is dearcharliemarketing.com um, and then you can also follow me on Instagram, which is at Dear Charlie Marketing. Um, and I would love to hear from you guys. If you've listened to this podcast and you've really enjoyed it, please do send me a DM and have a chat with me about it. I'd love to know what you found helpful. Yeah, definitely um, get in touch with Charlie and follow her. She has excellent tips on her Instagram. Um, well, I want to thank you again for coming. And yeah, I guess we'll wrap up there. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great Christmas if I don't get to speak to you before then. <laughs> If you're loving the podcast, why not head on over and leave me a review? It'll help people just like you to find it. And make sure you're subscribed to get all the latest episodes right in your podcast player. That's it from me for now. Until next time, may your brand sparkle. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Wadawurrung people and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded.